Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And welcome to the Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of the United States podcast. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our podcast about sailing the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we'll focus on passages and destinations. In other episodes, we'll talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And when we come across an interesting person, we'll try to get them as a guest on the show. Before we dive into this episode, we need to say a special thank you to our supporters. Several listeners are supporting the podcast using Patreon. If you would like to join them, you can just go to patreon.com forward slash sailing the east. Yep. Thanks to the listeners, Bela. That's why we do this. Um, but, you know, once again, I'm on the, uh, the edge of my seat. Who do you have for us this week? Uh, yes, repeat guest. So if our listeners can remember back in episode 88 and 89, we talked to Simon and Sawyer about the first leg of their very first Atlantic crossing, which was from Newport, Rhode Island to Horta, which is in the Azores. So Newport to Horta is about two thirds of the way across the Atlantic. In this episode, we cover Horta to the coast of Spain. And then in our next episode, we will cover Spain to the UK, which was their final destination. Ah, Bela, I'm thrilled. Okay, this has been a great story. And just a note to listeners, if you haven't listened to the earlier episodes, I think it was episodes 84 and 85, right? Um, with Simon and Sawyer about prepping for the trip. Um, go back and listen to those. And then 88 and 89 is the first part of their journey before listening to this episode, and it'll all fit in and, and make sense. But, but with that, I'm really excited. Let's get right to it, and let's see how Simon and Sawyer fared um on the trip uh on, on this part of the trip it's uh it's a beautiful part of the world i looked it up because i didn't really know much about horta and i looked it up on google maps and google earth and looked at some pictures and it looks amazing so i'm really excited to hear uh about this part of their journey hey sawyer simon good to see you again bela once again how hey bela how are you <laughs> i'm doing very well thanks actually going to the boat tomorrow uh, so we're, as as we record this, Hurricane Lee, or Tropical Storm slash Tropical Depression, Lee, mm -hmm. just passed by the East Coast, and uh, I'm planning to go to the boat tomorrow, make sure everything's okay, and also to uh, 
start winterizing the winterizing process, which takes a while. You know, the more systems you have on a boat, the longer that takes. <laughs> and uh, also to do a little bit of solo sailing. So it should that's, be a good se several days. Yeah. That's awesome that you're doing the solo sailing. I'm, I'm really impressed. Yeah. You know, it it's I did some last year. I think I did three days, not, not three consecutive days, just yeah. kind of a day sail. And I pick my weather window carefully. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think like we've talked before, because of the way my boat's designed, then I have that pass through stern. Mm -hmm. I, I can back into my dock and I have some fenders on the stern. So when I'm docking the boat, if I get into my slip, okay, I can leave the boat in reverse and the boat will just sit there. Yeah. Pushed up right against the dock. So I can take my leisurely time, get off and tie the boat up. So uh, you know, it took me a long time to sort of sort all that out and figure out how to do that. Um, but now I feel pretty confident. And the same thing with sailing. It it it's interesting because it you guys probably saw noticed this as well. But when you're doing stuff by yourself or shorthanded, it forces you to stop and think things through. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think it makes. I mean, it certainly makes you a better sailor because you need to be. What's the right word? Judicious, right? With all your efforts. Yeah. You, you yeah. can't just be mucking around. You got to do what's needed when it's needed. So. Yeah. And it, it's like playing chess. You, you got to think uh, three yeah. or four steps ahead. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. You, you just can't be thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about your first Atlantic crossing. Yeah. And uh, if I remember correctly, I wrote this down to get it right. So in episode 88 and 89, we talked about your trip from Newport to Horta. Mm -hmm. And actually in episode 84 and 85, we talked about all the preparations you guys went through for your first, first trip across the Atlantic. So yep. our listeners can listen to those episodes. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Horta to your final destination. So uh, why don't you guys pick it up from there and just, you guys are in Horta. Yeah. Right? <laughs> How much time did you spend there? What was Horta like? Okay. Uh, you know, just kind of talk about stuff and I'll think of questions to ask and we'll we'll go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start a little bit. So, I mean, Horta's amazing. And, you know, it was, of course, it's, it's, it's well known amongst sailors who try to cross the Atlantic and it's been well known for 400 years, right? As the place that you go um, to make repairs, to pick up crew, to, you know, uh, to just take a take a break, so it has a little bit of that, but it's it's a destination in, in and of itself. So we actually spent a total of about three weeks there. Um, we had some repairs to make. I think we talked about last time. You know, nothing crazy, but we had a lot of lines that chafed through, um, some some rigging hardware that broke, um, a little we had a stanchion that bent, things like that. So we had some work to do. Um, even though it's a little island, literally in the middle of the, middle of the ocean. Um, because there's so many sailors that do stop there and they all need help, there is a small community of um, kind of custom fab, you know, repair people. And 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 uh, there's a chandlery there. Uh, there's a rigger there. Uh, a guy works out of his van. So anyway, we, we got some stuff done and we actually had a great time hanging out with the other vagabond sailors, as we call them. Yeah. That we either coming from Europe, going going west or we're coming from the Caribbean and going back. So. You know, yeah. it's, it's a different different class of sailor. You know, it's not what we're 
very different from what we usually experience on the East Coast, right? So, um, you know, that the folks, at least in my experience, you know, the folks that you see in Newport or in Rhode Island or up and down the East Coast, you know, they're, you know, like generally pretty well to do. They have, you know, the nice boats, they're going on little weekend vacations or week-long things. And and the the community at Horta was really different. It was a lot of these like young folks, a lot of folks like taking a gap year in college, mm -hmm. you know, and they, you know, scraped up enough money to buy a little like 28 foot beater boat, you know, and, um, you know, doing things uh, on the, on the living in a house to the camping uh, spectrum. They were much more on the camping side. Yeah. Right. But like that sense of adventure that uh, was, that was the first time I'd really yeah, seen yeah, it. That was probably, I didn't expect that. Yeah. Very, a young crowd for sure. I mean, there's yeah. a few folks like me, but uh, most were sort of, yeah, late twenties, 30 kind of backpackers on a boat basically. Yeah. And, and you can tell the ones that, just kind of arrived because they were tired and, <laughs> and oh, their boats so, were beat up. <laughs> yeah, no, really. We, I mean, we, so we actually kind of got lucky. It's a very small harbor, by the way. Um, and uh, you, there's no reservations, of course, right? You, you show up, you call, and they try to put you somewhere. And that may be on a mooring, maybe you have to anchor, uh, or there's a seawall, and they'll actually um, line boats up three boats deep just so they can kind of fit them in. We got lucky, we actually got up on the wall. Uh, right as we arrived um and then so over the course of the you know three weeks people would come and go and come and go so we got to see everyone when they first arrived <laughs> <laughs> and i mean literally people would climb over our boat jump onto the onto the dock and and kiss the kiss the dock um so everyone had a story to tell it was yeah, it was really cool yeah yeah so talk a little bit about now that you've done this long leg from newport to horta what did you do different in sort of getting ready to do the next leg, which I think, uh, tell us where that was too. Where was the next piece going to go to? So, you know, our, our original plan really only had two destinations. We, yes. you know, we're in Rhode Island and we want to get to Horta. And then ultimately we need to get, get to England because we we're meeting family in England. Um, but we hadn't fully thought through what that, that second leg, what those intermediate destinations would be. Um, you know, I think our initial thought was that we were going to go to Ireland and then sail around the Irish coast a bit and then hop over to the, the British Isles. Um, but, you know, I think we were convinced on the dock by other folks to actually go to Spain instead. Um, and, you know, looking at the weather, I think maybe one of the biggest differences, you know, for this leg versus the previous leg was that it was a completely different weather regime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the in early June, when we had left for the Azores trip, we had a pretty broad weather window. I mean, we, we delayed our departure by a couple of days, um, but by and large, once we departed, you know, we didn't have like big low pressure systems we had to worry about, right? We had like one, uh, like one front, one cold front, yeah. but by and large, like we just pointed our bow east and sailed for, you know, two and a half weeks. Um, but when we're looking at, you know, the weather forecasts, you know, by this time, like the end of July, uh, early August, it's it's much more variable. Much right? more we have volatile. I mean, yeah. it's just I guess probably there's much more energy now in the ocean, right? <laughs> so there's there were these really nasty looking lows coming off of the Canadian Maritimes and or Greenland every three days. Yeah. Right. So we were trying to figure out how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and how long a, how long is a trip is it from like Horta to Ireland? How many days? 
Yeah, it's like around 10-ish days, you know, somewhere between nine and 12. So, uh, yeah, we kept waiting for this window and, you know, it'd be like five good days and then bam, you know, or three good days and then, uh, yeah. So, we, so, uh, so chances, chances are you're going to get hit on a, no, on a good day hit. trip. You're going to get hit no, you're maybe two or three times. You're going to get hit. Well, There's no way around that. And, and the latitude matters too, yeah. right? So, so you know, the, the Azores and like, you know, the, the lower part of Western Europe are at pretty low latitude. So they don't get hit by these big storms as frequently. But by this point in the season, Ireland was getting hit by lows like, like every were, week. They were <laughs> named storms. Yeah. So, yeah. so how do we, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, you know the, the, the weather window leaving the Azores at this point was large, right? We could like, we could have left the Azores, you know, at any point in the next two weeks. But, you know, we might have only had a three-day weather window to get into Ireland and how do we plan that 10 days in advance yeah right it, it ended up being kind of just a really tricky problem um but you know we we determined that if we instead of going up to Ireland if we essentially stayed at the same latitude and just went directly east over to Spain it's it's a shorter passage for one but then also it it kept us away from that volatile weather mm -hmm. and then the the remaining parts of the trip from Spain up to England, those are much shorter legs. And so even though it's later in the season and we're heading north, it, you know, it's, it's easier to connect the dots in yeah. the storms. Yeah, so that, was, that was most of our thinking um, in terms of that. I, I will say that you know it did surprise us, and this is after probably going all the way to the UK, um, that it is, it is difficult to find a, a good weather window. Meaning, I mean, you can find them, but you need to wait for them if that's what you're planning to do. And we were a small crew, just the two of us now, going from uh, from the Azores. And we're kind of cautious sailors, right? We weren't really trying to find danger. Um, and so if, if those are your parameters, you know, you might need to wait a week or two weeks to get that that window. I didn't expect that before we left. You know, I was yeah. kind of thinking, you know, it's 18 days to the Azores, and it's nine days to Ireland, and it's two days to England. Okay, that's that's fine, but... The reality is you might have to wait two weeks to make that next eight-day trip or another week to make that next three-day trip. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, that's if you're cruising, it, it takes a while. And maybe that's why people take sometimes three years to go around the world because it's it's a lot of waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of preparation, yeah, I think some, some major things that were different. You mm -hmm. asked about that, right? Um, one, yeah. uh, we talked last time about how seasick I yeah. was or we were. <laughs> Um, so we did get our physician to prescribe us uh, the patches you put behind your ear. Um, we each got a couple boxes. Yeah. Oh, those things are game changer. Absolute game changer. Yeah. yeah. So they recommend every three days that you switch them out. Yeah. Um, that worked pretty well for Sawyer. I found actually that by the end of the second day, I was already starting to not be great. So then I started going every two days and, uh, yeah, made it, made a tremendous difference. I still got seasick a couple times, but it wasn't that debilitating seasickness I had come on over so excellent that was great yeah. uh and yeah um I think we talked about it a little last time just I wasn't prepared for that I didn't yeah. really get seasick before not not severely and so that was different um food we we mm -hmm. we we adjusted a little bit our preparation for food so remember we had some you know great stores of food that my wife helped prepare and you know good recipes and um and all that and and we realized on the trip over just really because of the fatigue and the, you know, how rough the sea state is, it's difficult to, to prepare food. So we did, you know, stock up on and kind of pre-made meals that were going to be easy to make. 
on that second leg. Um, ultimately, actually, we fared better because I think we weren't seasick and we were able to cook quite a bit. Right. But right. Um, we were better prepared. But, you know, you stop soup and crackers, ramen, all that yeah. kind of stuff like that. Um, and then I think from a preparation standpoint, too, we just we did allow ourselves more time. So we, so we assumed that we we're going to be going more slowly than we assumed on the first mm-hmm. leg over. Even though we made good time on the first leg over, we had sort of assumed 150, 160 mile, nautical mile days. And we were never hitting that mark. So on the, the next trip over to Spain and then up to France, we were planning like 120s. We actually did better. We ended up doing about 140. But, um, you know, we kind of pulled back our expectations, which was important in terms of our... Um, you know, looking at the weather, uh, our sail plan, and and yeah. adding up. Cool. Well, I'm glad to hear the patches worked. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you guys remember when we were on that trip together, <laughs> I had my patches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, I mean, someone. Had, I think we were talking to somebody before we left, and and we were going through all the preparations we had done, and all the gear, and we all the classes we took, and everything. And they're kind of like you know, nodding, and they said, "What are you doing for seasickness?" And I was like, oh, no, 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 we don't get seasick. It's no problem. <laughs> so anyway, I guess like a lesson is even if you never get seasick, you should be prepared that you may get seasick. Yeah. It's easy to get some you know, better medication and it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Super. Super. So uh, you went from Horta to where was your first stop? So, so our next one, we went yeah, directly to A Coruña, Spain. And, you know, if you imagine Spain as a square, A Coruña is located on the northwestern corner of that square. Um, and it was a really cool destination. It's a it's a really popular stopping ground, we, we found out, um, you know, for folks in Northern Europe, um, both on their way to the Mediterranean and just as a spot to hang out. Um, because, you know, it, it, whether you're going towards the Azores or to the Mediterranean or farther south to then cross the Atlantic at like in the tropics, um, Akron is right on your the point that sticks out in the ocean yeah, yeah exactly um and it's been that i mean it's it's been a, a sailing destination for a really long time kind of like the azores as well so um you know so we arrived there and it was in some ways a little similar right there's like a lot of cruisers um you know that there's a real yeah sailing liveaboard culture mm-hmm. in acarunia um, but it's also a, a big tourist destination for you know western europe as a whole so it's this like large city vibrant culture and food and late nights and um and that, that was that was a really nice place yeah yeah and uh, and the azores if i remember my uh history correctly or my geography is portuguese it is yeah, yeah. it's a and, you know semi-autonomous like region in, in portugal yeah. yeah portugal and was there was there language challenges uh no i mean uh yeah no most people would, would speak english so if you speak yeah. english it's you know convenient and uh uh, actually, so in the Azores, you know, um, there's a, a really large Azorean Portuguese community in the Northeast of the United States, um, going back to the time when whale ships would stop in the Azores, yeah. pick up crew and bring them to Cape Cod or to, you know, um, Nantucket, Nantucket or whatnot. Yeah. Right. And then uh, more recently in the 50s, I think there were a lot of uh, volcanic activity in the Azores. And so many people left the island. And actually, there's a program in the U.S. that allowed anyone that wanted to leave to, to come to the U.S. So many people that are in the Azores have lived in the U.S., they have family there, and they speak English. Um, but, the, you know, the trip to Spain was, I, I maybe should talk about that a little bit, it was, it was somewhat different. And I think, you know, an easier trip for us. Mm-hmm. 
maybe you know, the seasickness was put to the side. Um, we kind of had had that first experience of the 17 days. So this now the eight days seemed kind of short, right? <laughs> I mean, four days in, we were halfway there, you know, so it's kind of easier to, to count. Um, we had pretty strong winds again, nice like 20, 25 knots on a, on a beam reach, but um, that was fine. We knew what, what the boat could handle. We were probably more um, cautious with our rigging and our, mm -hmm. and our lines. We didn't have so much chafing. Um, and maybe the most important thing is, I, someone said it once before, I don't know how they said it, but, you know, it was sunny, actually. <laughs> and, you know, when it's like dark and it's cloudy and it's 15 foot waves, it's really and, and scary. You're, and you're sick. <laughs> and you're sick. It's really scary, at least for me. I, you know, I get it. But when it's sunny out and it's blue skies and it's 15 foot waves, it's like, oh, this is great. You know, the yeah. spray in my face, the wind in my hair. So it was it was much more enjoyable. Yeah. You know, it's this funny thing because I think, you know, objectively from a. Uh, like a boat performance or a boat comfort standpoint, you know, the the, the trip to the Azores, we were sailing, you know, dead downwind mm -hmm. almost the whole time. I think, you know, there was one time where we had to whisk pole up for, you know, six days straight or something. And then, you know, this trip to Spain, you know, if I remember correctly, we motored for the first couple of days mm -hmm. and then the wind filled in on a beam reach and we were essentially sailing on the beam, um, you know, with small variations the whole way on one tack. And so the boat was more rolly, right? Mm -hmm. We're taking the waves on the side. Um, but it, it felt great. It was sunny. <laughs> we knew what we were doing. Um, I was sleeping a lot better. Yeah, we slept better, right? Um, yeah. Definitely less anxious, right? Those things go hand in hand. Um, like I, I remember in, on the first leg, you know, I, I didn't feel particularly horrible, but I I couldn't read, right? Like I, I But on the, on the second leg, I felt so good. I was reading Moby Dick. <laughs> and uh then the time was was passing quick so it overall was a much better passage yeah well that's great that's wonderful to hear so uh on both the newport to azores leg and on this leg uh did you see a lot of other uh traffic marine traffic boat traffic yeah that also was really surprising um so i mean visually we only saw coming to the azores i think we saw two cargo ships like visually mm -hmm. which means they're within you know three, four miles, right? You can't see that far. Yeah. Um, but on our AIS, which has a range of about 20 miles, you know, line of sight with the, you know, the deck of the ship or the bridge of the ship rather, it's about 20 miles. Um, we pretty much always had at least one vessel on AIS, right? Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which was, yeah, I had no idea. And sometimes we had 20. <laughs> like if we were in a certain, like a, an area, I mean, these, these big ships, right? They're sailing the great circle. They don't, I mean, they care about severe weather, but, you know, 20 knots, 40 knots, I don't think they care so much about, right? right. So right. wherever that great circle is, that's where they're going to be the most efficient and they point. So, you know, I guess when we would cross the great circle that was going from, say, Southampton to New York, there was a bunch. And when we crossed the great circle that was going from mm -hmm. uh, Rotterdam to Texas or something, right? We crossed a bunch. And there might be 10 or 20 ships. Mm -hmm. um, we had to make a few course corrections. You know, we, we had our AIS set up like, where we get alarm if we're closest point of approach is within two miles and i don't know what four or five times we, yeah there were we radioed or, or did something to to adjust but yeah so it's actually this is kind of this interesting contrast because the sailing around the coast of europe was a very different kind of traffic management strategy than you know when we were in the open ocean on the way to the azores so you know when we we're sailing out to the azores yeah there were very frequently we'd see ships on our chart plotter from the ais and Every now and then one would come close. 
and you know we just radio them up and they were always super friendly and they'd make a course correction for us there's no like no questions asked. Drama at all yeah. they didn't care wow. Uh, it's like they're they're very happy to hear from us, which is yeah. Someone in the chat actually. Yeah, <laughs> it was like two in the morning, kind of boring. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're bored. You're bored. <laughs> yeah. Um. But then you know, coming into coastal Europe, we started getting into these traffic separation zones. Yeah. Mm. Um. Or traffic separation schemes (TSS), and those are a very different dynamic. So you have you know these ships that are essentially on these highways, um, you know, all in one direction. They're not really talking to each other. Uh, on, you know, channel 16, I think they're they're probably talking with like a uh, some sort of like vessel traffic control. Um, the the ships are a lot closer together, and you know na- the onus is on us to stay out of their way. It's not whereas before, you know, they, it was kind of the ship's responsibility to stay away from us. Um, yeah. So when you're when you're when you're on the open ocean or you're not in a traffic separation s- scheme. A sailing vessel is a stand-on vessel compared to a, a motor, yes. including a cargo ship. Um, unless it's in a channel, right? Or has like reduced maneuverability. Sure. So right. these traffic separation schemes are considered like channels, right? They need to stay in those. So when you're a sailboat approaching them, you now have to make way. And um, they're typically four lanes. So there's two inner lanes for like like hazmat cargo. Mm-hmm. And then and they're going opposite. And then there's two outer lanes for the more normal cargo. And yeah, when we so when we approached Spain, um, it was remember that game Frogger, Baylor? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like Frogger, right? So there's the boats are like this; they're a mile apart. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all lined up, going one way and down the other way, and you have to sort of speed up and slow down to get get in between them. Yeah. And we didn't radio them. They, I, we had the sense that they didn't want to hear from us, and <laughs> we should just stay out of their way. Yeah, yeah. And you know, ultimately, it ended up being. Fine. I mean, so so the, the the route into Spain, especially, was was pretty low drama. We made some course corrections. Um, you know, mostly I think changing our speed more than our direction. Um, so you know, we might you know reduce our sail area to let us the ship pass in front of us and then speed yeah. up. Again. Um, but it was really in the English Channel, which was now a couple legs ahead, that we encountered an incredible amount of traffic, and yeah. uh, that, was, that was something yeah. different. I, I got to imagine that this is also a place where AIS can really help, N- not just in knowing that those ships are out there, but knowing that on your current heading and and speed and their current heading and speed, how close you're going to get to each other. So yeah. slowing down or speeding up, you can see the effect of that because I know I have a hard time judging depth, right? You see a big ship coming, it's hard to tell. No, I, mean, I certainly have a heart to tell. Yeah, so it's very, th- this has got to be a place where AIS is like really invaluable. I, I don't, I wouldn't consider like trying to, to, you know, navigate an area with high commercial traffic without AIS. It's like, you know, you read in old sailing books, people talk about like, you know, scanning the horizon and looking for ships and making course corrections. Like from, from our perspective, once you see the ship on the horizon, it's probably too late. Like you should have been making your course correction or chatting with the ship well before that point. And especially at night, this is a much larger concern because you see some lights on the horizon and it's often not entirely clear, right? Are they yes. coming toward you or away from you or are they That's crossing? Right. So you end up, you know, you're you're watching them for 10 minutes <laughs> to try and see, you know, where are they moving? And in that 10 minutes, they've gone from four miles away to a mile and a half. Yeah. It, you know. Yeah, I'll say too, like, so, I mean, AIS, We've only been sailing seriously for about five, six years, right, in the U.S. And when we first started, 
you know, certainly commercial ships had AIS. I'd say recreational right. boaters didn't. Not that many had it, right? And it's definitely becoming more and more popular to have active AIS, meaning you're both transponding and you're receiving. Um, over in Europe, it's I feel like every boat has it. Every not just commercial boat, but every every sailor has their AIS, and maybe it's because it's so um, congested. Yeah. In fact, I think one time I think we were in the channel, right, mm -hmm. and, and we did hear some radio traffic where a cargo ship was yelling at a sailboat for not having its AIS on, and uh, they were really upset about that. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's a that's a I I never thought of it in, in that way before, right? I always think about okay, I can see these ships, and yeah. Even in Narragansett Bay, you got one big ship coming. No mm -hmm. big deal, right? And it's you see maybe a few a day, but you don't see this parade coming. And and like you said, you got to thread your way through them because you're trying to go across the shipping lane, and they're not going to slow down because then the guy in back of them is going to hit him. No, no, they're all they're all in, in a row. And um, yeah, so the 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 rules of the TSS also are, I mean, the sort of. Um, Rules you should abide by is when you're crossing a, a TSS, you should do it perpendicularly. Yes. So make it quick. Yep. Um, and then in our case, we timed our crossing of the TSS as we were getting towards Spain, and then also the ones when we were crossing the English Channel to be during the daytime. Um, and so, like for the example, when we crossed the English Channel, uh, we were at night. We we ran parallel, but just outside the TSS until about 5:30 in the morning, and then when the sun came up. We we made our turn so we could see. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty pretty important because it's yeah you've got actually now your AS is very useful to to, to see the distances, um, but it's crowded. It's not like what you're used to in the Narragansett Bay with like one vessel, right? It's fifty, and the little lines that are showing you how far away you are are switching all over the place. So you <laughs> want to be able to like also look up and out and kind of then verify what's this boat that I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, you also need to turn. You know, we we learned too. You got to turn your two mile, you know, CPA alarm off because <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 everyone going off all the time. Yeah, yeah, it changes it. So really, we were looking at like a we were looking at like a quarter mile. That's what we were trying to do in most yeah, cases. Wow. And ideally, be behind, you know, at the stern of a boat, a quarter mile. But sometimes we had to just skip just in front of them. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds exciting. So you're in Spain. Let's go mm -hmm. back to that. Um, and then uh, what 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 was the next step? Bela, wow, the story just gets more and more interesting. Um, so Horta to Spain made sense instead of trying to go to Ireland, right? I mean, I know the listeners, if you listened early on, that was the original plan. And I have a good friend that lives in Dublin, so I know the weather there this time of year is, is uh, shite, as he likes to say. Um, so I don't know. So what do you make of this update from Simon and Sawyer? Change of plans, lots going on. What, what were your reflections on this? Uh, well, I think a couple things. Um, changing changing plans is normal for sailing, <laughs> uh, so I think that's just part of what you got to get used to if you're going to kind of have if you're going to live that kind of life. Uh, so, as we learned in the early episodes, they did really good preparations, uh, but even with all those good preparations, they had some equipment failures and challenges. And I think as they learned on this leg, uh, the waiting for a, a good weather window is really important. And, you know, the weather windows are relatively predictable season to season in various different parts of the world. So there's great places to be at certain times of the year. And that, and that same place can be not so great at other times of the year. So 
their notion that, gee, they could get a good weather window to leave Horta. So leaving Horta wasn't the problem. It was that by the time they got to England or the UK or Ireland, they were going to encounter some bad weather. So making this change to say, you know what, let's see if there's a different way, a different route that we can we can get there. Uh, and hence, they made the change to Spain. Um, so I think that that was sort of a takeaway. You got to be flexible. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting, right, that if you remember on the first leg of their trip from Newport to Horta, uh, Simon got pretty seasick. He kind of felt miserable most of the trip. Sawyer was sort of not feeling great all the time. Uh, they and and then they'd never been sick before, uh, seasick before in any of the cruising they've done in prior years. Um, but the you know, so they got some patches this time, these uh, uh patches that you put behind your ear that I've used many times. I use all the time, I just use them as they say prophylactically. <laughs> I don't uh, just in case. Um, and it's amazing how big a difference it makes in the trip, right? I mean, they talked about that how when you feel good. Uh, you know, and the weather is sunny and you're eating well and you're hydrating well, uh, it just feels great. And, and so the notion of your health is really, really important. And I think a lot of people over, overlook that. And so how you feel makes a huge difference in how you think about the trip and how much you enjoy the trip. So I think that's a really important takeaway. Yeah. You know, it was amazing. I mean, two things. It was amazing to me thinking about all the waiting that they were doing. And I mean, you and I have talked about managing your sailing to avoid bad weather. And, you know, I, in one level, know about this kind of waiting thing and the flexibility. But the way they told the story and the way they talked about their feelings and the frustration and kind of thinking yeah. all this through, they really told the story so clearly. It was amazing to me to think I could really kind of feel myself in their shoes. Kind of they've made this huge, long journey. They've overcome all these obstacles. Right. And now this last part is really frustrating, I think, you know, um, or at least there's roadblocks there. Um, so it's just a different beast than I think the sailing you usually do, right? Like, you know, when you're going out for a day or a short right. trip, you know, or the few times I've been on a sailboat that, yeah, you got to wait maybe a few hours, maybe a day, but they're talking days and days and days and days of looking for a window and then trying to figure out what risks do I take. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then, yeah, the whole thing about your physical health being tied to your mental health, being tied to everything else, I think was fascinating. And you know, we don't, both of us are not like, oh, I told you so type of people, but I think it was, I think you really nailed that, that everybody, that's one big takeaway, I think for the listeners, that it doesn't matter if you never have gotten seasick before, if you're going on a big trip like this, call the doctor and get those patches. That yeah. to me, I mean, these are strong guys that train for this and right with no drops of seasickness before and, and they struggled with it. Yeah. Um, so th those were two interesting things. What do you think? Any other keys uh, for dealing with the timing and with these health issues on a long distance sailing trip that our listeners can take away? Yeah, I think uh, let's talk about the waiting game again. Uh, you know, si Simon works, Sawyer's in graduate school, so they have a window <laughs> that that they can do this trip in. And, and the window's kind of narrow. And I think that's what adds to that emotional pressure that you're feeling. Of, oh, I got to wait. Whereas if if you have a really long window, if you say, okay, this is going to be a, a a 10 day trip, but I, I'm allowing 30 days for it, <laughs> then you enjoy where you're at. <laughs> if you have an extra four days in hoard up, oh, isn't that great? You know, it gives you a different perspective than if you're on a schedule. So if you have time pressure, 
I think if you're making long distance cruising, time pressures are not a good thing, uh, particularly in places where the where the weather windows are variable, like like at this time of the year where where they are. So I think that's number one. You you, you got to think through this notion of you can't control the weather and make sure you allow ample time. And I'm just, you know, on a five-day trip, I'm not just talking about an extra day or two. <laughs> I'm talking, you may have to wait 10 days to start your five-day trip. <laughs> so I think, I think that's a big takeaway. Uh, I think the other interesting thing was, you know, depending upon what part of the world you're in, the shipping channels can be a big challenge. Uh, when, you know, when you're out in the ocean, yeah, they saw a boat every day, they said, but it wasn't a big deal. And, and now they were in parts of the world where the shipping channels are really concentrated. And it's almost like a rush hour <laughs> traffic where the ships are sort of lined up right behind each other. And they actually have, they call them shipping lanes uh, or traffic separation zones. Uh, it's like a road in the ocean where all these big ships follow each other. And they do that because they don't want them to hit each other. And... Uh, and if you're trying to go across one of these, or even if you're going in the same direction as the ships, these big ships go 15, 20, 25 knots, and the sailboat, you can't keep up. So you got to think about that. And, and I think that was a, a new challenge to them, and it would be a new challenge to me as, as well, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's shipping channels around New England that I've seen. I mean, there's shipping channels. There's a traffic separation zone coming into Narragansett Bay, uh, one for the inbound direction, one for the outbound direction. But I see maybe one or two boats there a day, not a not a parade. So how you're going to deal with that is is important, you know. So you want to deal with it during the daytime. You got to have AIS to figure out what direction these ships are going in, and and they they see you and you can see them. Um, so I think that's that was sort of a new experience to them. Uh, and again, highly predictable, depending upon what parts of the world you're in. This other thing is is the weather routing. I think the interesting thing here is what you want to think through a little bit is what is the weather going to be like if the trip takes you two days longer than you anticipate. In other words, you you leave on time, but it the going is slow and it's going to take you two or three days longer than you anticipate. How does that impact your weather on 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 the other end of the trip. In other words, I would rather leave in weather that's a little bad, knowing that it's gonna be good for the second half of my trip than the opposite. I, I, I'd rather, uh, I don't wanna have bad weather at the end of my trip because I'm tired, um, you know, maybe something's broken on the boat, et cetera. I'd rather have the bad weather or the less comfortable weather, maybe is a better way of saying it, saying it in the beginning part of the trip than the end part of the trip. So you got to think not just about the weather on the five days of your transit, but what's the weather going to be like on day six, seven, and eight, because if it takes longer, that's what you're going to encounter. So I think that's another big, big takeaway. Um, so I think that was, that was sort of the big things for me, Mike. Did you have anything else? Love it. No, I thought the I thought the shipping route thing was really interesting too. I didn't know anything about that about how the ships are lined up and when you have to kind of go in between and uh, sometimes in the middle of the night they like to talk to you, but other times it's like just stay out of my way because <laughs> I've got this little window. That was a whole other world to me, and I thought that yeah. was really fascinating as well. Yeah, 
Yeah. So what do you think? We should wrap this yeah. one up, Mike? Yeah, I can't, I can't wait for the last part from Spain to the UK, across the dreaded Bay of Biscayne, right? And and into yeah. the English Channel. It sounds really, really cool. So listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode. We hope that you found this conversation interesting and thought-provoking. And as always, if you have questions about what we've discussed, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is sailingtheeast, all one word, at gmail.com. Hey, and if you enjoy the podcast, uh, hit that follow button or subscribe button, whatever it's called in your app. Uh, that really helps us, It help, and it helps other people find the podcast. Uh, and if you know someone that would be a good guest for the show, let us know. Uh, we'll invite them on. Uh, hope to see you out there. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you all soon. Sounds great, Balen. From over here in Münster, Germany, we'll see you next time.